So whether it's a relationship, campaign promises, or the United States Postal Service, it's clear we have a hard time fulfilling the promises we make. But thankfully, what's true of us isn't true of God. This morning, a a young, humble teenage virgin beautifully reminds us that our God is the God who keeps his word every time for his people. If Promises, Promises is an 80s ballad lamenting the unfaithfulness of a deceitful lover, then the Magnificat is an anthem celebrating the faithfulness of a God unwaveringly devoted to his people. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. It's on page 856 of the Red Seatback Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, that Bible that you just picked up is yours to keep today. If you remember, a couple of months ago, we started a series on songs of praise in the Bible. Today, we continue that series by, by dropping into Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third book in the New Testament and the only New Testament book with a sequel, the book of Acts. And in the book of Luke, Luke, a a Gentile doctor and a close companion of the Apostle Paul, sets out to write a a theologically charged historical, historical narrative of the life and ministry of a man named Jesus Christ, Israel's long awaited Messiah King. In chapters 1 to 3 of Luke, Luke describes Jesus' birth, his boyhood, and his baptism. And throughout each of those chapters, Luke sets up a, a contrast between Jesus and between his cousin, John the Baptist. Everything in these chapters is meant to, to show Jesus' superiority to John. Luke works to show that superiority to John from the very beginning, from the womb, in fact. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, the angel Gabriel appears to Jesus' mother Mary and announces to her that she's found favor with God and will bear his son, who will establish his kingdom and reign over the house of Jacob forever. All of this, Gabriel says, will be done through the power of God's Holy Spirit. Gabriel also tells Mary that her relative Elizabeth, John's mom, has also conceived a son in her old age. And so Mary, in in verse 39, rushes to see her relative. And as soon as Mary enters the house of her relative, Luke tells us that little baby John, filled with the Holy Spirit, leapt in exaltation in his mother's womb. Elizabeth then immediately launches into this spirit-filled commentary explaining the the cosmic significance of John's gestational gymnastics. I just had to slide that in there, right? It's a fun word. My wife's a labor and delivery nurse. Listen listen to what what Elizabeth says beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 41. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth and John both marvel that this, that the Messiah would visit them and that God had chosen Mary to be his mother. So, so John's gymnastics and Elizabeth's blessing work in tandem to confirm Gabriel's announcement to Mary made earlier in the chapter. And it's then, it's then in that space between verse 45 and 46 that Mary realizes the magnitude of this moment. That the little embryo growing inside her is the promised Messiah come to set his people free. That her child is Israel's long-expected king. My child is my savior. And in that moment, Mary, the mother of Christ, bursts into song. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. In terms of structure, Mary's song breaks up pretty easily. Verses 46 to 50 celebrate God's faithfulness to Mary. Verses 51 to 53, they celebrate God's faithfulness in power. And verses 54 to 55 celebrate God's faithfulness to Israel. While verse 56 just closes the scene out. It's one big song grounded in the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus. But what what really fills Mary's lungs with song, what really raises her voice to the rafters, it isn't just that God fulfills his promise. It's the manner in which he does it. God keeps his promises personally, powerfully, and particularly. And those, those are just going to serve as our basic outline this morning. Point one, God keeps his promise, promises personally. We're going to see that in verses 46 to 50. Point two, God keeps his promises powerfully. We'll see that in verses 51 to 53. And point three, God keeps his promises particularly. Verses 54 
to 55. If you didn't get that, we'll repeat them later in the service. All of these, all of these adverbs, as it were, are, are going to work uh, to reinforce the chorus that Mary sings throughout her song, verse by verse. It's this, by his mercy, God never fails to keep his promises to his people. By his mercy, God never fails to keep his promises to his people. So point number one, God keeps his promises personally. God keeps his promises personally. Mary's song is is an outburst of praise dripping with the Old Testament. In particular, there are several resemblances to uh, the song song and prayer of Hannah that that Treva just read for us. And one of those similarities between those, those two songs is how intensely personal both are. Notice, notice in Mary's song all of the first personal pronouns uh, that she drops in those first four verses. She's, she's repeatedly emphasizing the personal nature of God's promise keeping mercy to her. The God of, of the universe has cast an eye on Mary, regarded her in her low estate and done great things for her. She is the object of God's mercy. He has looked upon an ordinary, helpless, humble, unmarried virgin in a peasant town in an obscure country and said, you, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now make no mistake here. Mary's done nothing to deserve such favor from God. Though she's been found obedient to God's word, her faithfulness isn't the object of her praise. God is. God is. From the deepest recesses of her being, from her spirit, from her soul, Mary makes much of the Lord. She sings his praises, not her own. And what are those praises? Well, Mary tells us in verses 48 to 50. She's blessed not because she's the mother of God, but because the mighty, holy, and merciful one stoops down and associates with the lowly. She sings because of who and what God is and because of what he's about to accomplish for the world through her. The point in all of it is God, is God, not Mary. Unfortunately, this is where our Catholic friends miss the point entirely. We can wholeheartedly agree with Rome that Mary was a godly person and in many ways a model disciple for us, that Jesus was born of a virgin and that Mary was favored in in having the privilege of giving birth to Jesus Christ. But in no way do these verses support the idea that Mary was immaculately conceived and without sin, remained a virgin in perpetuity, or, or should be venerated as the queen of heaven or as a co-mediator with Christ. There's no hint of that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, Mary, right here in her own song and in her own words, undoes much of what Roman Catholicism says about her. 
for, for where Roman Catholicism will have us make much of Mary, God's word and, and Mary herself will only have us make much of God. That said, we shouldn't treat Mary like she's some Catholic boogie woman. If we overreact to, to, to Catholic misconceptions about Mary, we will fail to see her godliness and her role in the story of salvation. As the mother of our Lord, she sets the tone for his disciples when she sings of God's mercy to his people and of his faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises. We have much to learn from Mary about what it means to be a disciple. Notice how repeatedly she draws our attention to particular attributes about God in these first four verses. She, she speaks about God as her savior in verse 47, as the God who regards the lowly in verse 48, as the God who is mighty and holy in verse 49, and as the God who is exceedingly merciful in verse 50. And in all of this, Mary rightly communicates who she is in light of who God is. Because God is her savior, Mary sees herself as in desperate need of him. Because God is the one who has looked on her, Mary knows she's done nothing to deserve his favor. Because God is powerful, holy, and merciful, Mary knows her only hope is in him. So, so Mary's right assessment of God gives her a right assessment of herself. She stares into the face of God, and it empties her of her pride, and it fills her with humility. Friends, brothers and sisters, we need to stare with Mary. We need to stare with her into God's face. C.J. Mahaney defines humility in his little book that Trey referred to earlier, humility, like this. Humility is, is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So without, without a right assessment of these two things, true humility will never take root in our hearts. It will never grow in our understanding or practice. But this this kind of humility isn't easy to cultivate. It's not easy to cultivate for the Christian. Sometimes it's especially not easy to cultivate for the Christian. So, so what can we do to, to foster it in our own hearts? Well, I think Mary instructs, instructs us through her song in at least four ways. One, we need to study the size of God. We need to study the size of God. We need to study those attributes that make God, God. We need to study what, what, what it is that Mary praises him for, his sovereignty, his holiness, his mercy. We need to just sit under that sheer distance between us and God and let it create in our hearts the kind of humility that Mary displays here. Don't, don't be afraid to read a book on this. Don't be afraid of a book on, on the big attributes of God. Our, our bookstall is a great place to start. 
Number two, we need to study the size of God's grace. Study the size of God's grace. We need, to, we need to see that the fundamental reason for your conversion wasn't that, that you were wiser or morally superior than others in choosing God, but that God, just as he did for Mary, chose to have mercy on you and intervened in your life. God initiates salvation. God initiated your salvation, Christian. This is what humbles Mary to her core. Thirdly, we need to study the size of sin. We need to study the size of sin. We need to study sin so that we see ourselves as the mother of God saw herself. Helpless, unworthy, sinful. We need to study to to see just how hopeless and dead we really are apart from God's help. Apart from his uh, initiation. And we don't just study to grow here in this area and knowledge, but we want to seek to apply that knowledge and obedience to the truth just as Mary does. And fourthly, fourth way to grow in humility, we need to magnify God in the ordinary. We can magnify God in the ordinary. I love the way Luke closes the scene in verse 56. You probably thought I wasn't going to say much about it. Well, though the Lord has has given Mary an incredible part to play in the story of salvation, she doesn't respond the way we might anticipate. She doesn't respond to that news like we might expect. She doesn't run out of the house shouting down the streets that she's the mother of the Messiah. No. What does she do? She simply stays with her pregnant relative, helps, helps her get baby John's room ready, and then, he go, and then she goes home. She goes home. Brothers and sisters, let Mary's quiet humility here be an encouragement to you. Do you want to magnify God and grow in humility? Then embrace the everyday ordinary in your life. For some of you, the godliest thing you're going to do this week is change a diaper. For others, it's going to be pursuing your studies with honesty and integrity. For, for some of you, it's going to be having patience around the Christmas dinner table on Tuesday with your relatives. For some of you, it, it will be sitting in traffic on 49 on your way to the same job that you've worked for the last 30 years. Honor God in these things and grow in your humility. If you're in Christ, like Mary, remember that you did nothing to merit God's mercy. And yet he has looked on you. He has looked on you in your humble estate and exchanged your unworthiness for the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. So Christian, brother and sister, follow the example of our Lord's mother. Humble yourselves before God and make much of him for the mercy that he has shown you. He's made you promises that he'll keep in the fullness of time. But he won't just keep them personally. He will also keep them powerfully. And that leads us to our second point. God keeps his promises powerfully. God keeps his promises powerfully. 
In verse 51 through 53, Mary's going to move to magnify God for his unparalleled power. There's a sense in, in which the personal mercy that God shows Mary now goes public for the whole, the whole world to see. <clears throat> she begins in, in verse 51 with God flexing his muscles for those who, who fear him. The reference to, to God's arm and the, the working of his power point to that visible demonstration of God's authority. And though it may not always seem like it, God is in control and working to redeem those who humble themselves. Notice how how Mary describes God's actions in the past tense in those verbs. He has shown. He has scattered. He has brought down. He has exalted. He has filled and he has sent away. Reading that, can you... You think like, what? How can Mary? How can she speak of these promises as past tense when the Messiah is still in his first trimester? How can she? How can she speak of these in past tense? Well, I I think what Mary's doing is is she's casting one eye forward into the future and recognizing that that her child will bring about these promises in the fullness of God's time. But she's also, she's also with her other eye looking back at what God has done in the past and allowing that to inform what she's certain he will do in the future. There's also a sense in which she sees God already fulfilling these promises through the baby she carries in her midsection. So don't, let, don't get lost in that. For Mary... It's as if the promises of God are already in the past tense because God and his promises are always past tense. They're they're as good as done the moment God makes them. The moment God speaks, the moment he promises, it's done. What are these promises? What are these promises? Well, she tells us. They're the mighty reversals that Israel's long-awaited spirit-anointed king would bring about for God's people. God promised that the deliverer would, would upend the world's moral, social, and spiritual order on their behalf. This is the kind of messianic hope and, and upheaval that Mary praises God for in verses 51 to 53. She, she begins by, by noting God's reversal of the expectations of the proud. There in verse 51. Just as God scattered the likes of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, so too would God's son stretch out his strong right arm against the hypocritical religious leaders of his own day and scatter all who would trust in their own moral superiority. Remember that he is for the tax collector who would beat his breast, crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But that God opposes the likes of the Pharisee who foolishly hopes in their own self-righteousness. But the proud aren't, aren't the only ones that God promises to cut down. In verse 52, Mary brings us to, to the throne room. 
God casts down the mighty from their thrones, and, and he exalts the humble, reversing the world's social order. The kings and, and the rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, but they do so in vain, Psalms two, Psalm 2 tells us. For it's the Lord who sets his king on his throne and dashes to pieces like a clay pot all who oppose his anointed's reign. Our God laughs at the world's social order, not because he doesn't care, but because of the one who sits at his right hand. Our God, our God laughs because of that one, the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you hear that? God laughs. Mary sings. And Christian, you will sit with the king of kings because God has brought the mighty down from their thrones and will exalt you, the humble. For the believer in Christ, this is a done deal. It's past tense for you. It's why Peter tells us to, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he might exalt us. 1 Peter 5, 6. In verse 53, Mary moves on to praise God for his promise to reverse the spiritual and the material order of the world. We see this, this promise played out in the story of the rich young ruler who refused to share his, his wealth with the poor and to follow Jesus. Instead, his desire for the material choked out his spiritual appetite, and he was sent away empty. Remember the story of poor Lazarus and the unbelieving rich man that Luke, Luke points us to in Luke 16. The rich man feasted sumptuously every day while poor little Lazarus laid at his gate begging to eat the crumbs that would fall from his table. In the end, the poor man died and was lifted up to heaven while the rich man was cast down in the, into hell because of his self-satisfaction and his hardness of heart. When Christ returns, he will satisfy those who continuously hunger and thirst for righteousness, just as he said he would in Matthew 5, 6. God will fulfill these promises. He will fulfill them in power for those who fear him. He will act on behalf of the humble, the helpless, and the hungry, so, so here, humble yourselves before God. Hunger and thirst for him, not the things of this world. We are all far too tempted to, to find our satisfaction and our hope in, in ourselves, in power, and in money. And yet God promises to topple every single one of these things. He promises to, to shatter your self-reliance, to throw you down from your makeshift thrones, 
And in the end, you will find yourself bankrupt in the squalor of your own misappropriated worship. Remember what God promises for those who say they have no need of him. Hear him laughing. And remember who sits at his right hand. Mary's son will come again. He will come again to establish his kingdom. And he will cut down those so full of the world and themselves that they feel they have no need of him. And when he does, he will vindicate the poor, the broken, the needy, the humble. So Christian, have eyes that look toward that day. Cast your eye toward the future. Like Mary, cast it forward and backward and presently. Pride, power, and money cannot deliver what they promise you. Only God's king is strong enough to to deliver on his promises. He will keep his promises in power, personally, to you. He will also keep them particularly for his people. Moves us to point number three, our last point. God keeps his promises particularly. He keeps his promises particularly. Well, Mary gives the the basis of all of God's vindicating work in these last couple of verses, verses 54 to 55. God, God will fulfill his promises through his Messiah King because of the covenant mercy and love that, that he shows particularly, particularly for his people, Israel. In Christ, God comes to Israel's aid here, not because of her faithfulness to him, but because of his faithfulness to her. So in, so in verse 54, that verb helped uh, is another past tense verb it's another past tense, ver- past tense verb that's anchored in, in God's past, present, and future faithfulness to Israel, just like those previous verbs that we saw. Well, but how can Mary be so sure of all of this? How can she be sure that, that God has helped his servants? Well, because God's not forgotten to keep the promises that he made to Abraham and his offspring back in Genesis 12, where he told Abraham this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make, you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, so Mary's mourning sickness then is proof that God hasn't bailed on this promise. It's, it's proof that he hasn't bailed on the promise he made to Abraham and his offspring. The promised king through whom all the families of the, of the earth will be blessed, is here. He's here. And in keeping his promise to Mary personally, God keeps his promise to the offspring of Abraham in particular. I think that, that little phrase there in the second half of verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy, is key. It's, it's key for us to understand what she's singing about here. She's not saying that that God's forgotten his covenant to Abraham and that that now all of a sudden, thousands of years later, he kind of has this aha moment and the lights turn back on for him in his brain. Like, I was going to do something amazing for someone at one point in history. Who who was that again? You know, his name is on the tip of my tongue. I 
Ah, Abraham, that's right, that's who it was. That doesn't happen to God. He's not, he's not like us. Right? You're never going to catch him scratching his head, scrambling in the 11th hour to keep his promises. He never forgets. God never forgets, just as he did when he heard them groaning and crying out because of their slavery to Pharaoh and Exodus, God never forgets to redeem his people, no matter how far or how faithless they prove to be. Which is why his, his mercy is always a community affair. Because he always remembers his mercy to a particular people, to Israel. God's mercy is intensely personal, which we've already seen. Yes, but it never, ever isolates us. God's always been about the work of, of creating a particular people who have trusted in his word, whether it was the word he spoke to Abraham back in Genesis or the word that became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus calls Christians to gather with other Christians in local churches. That's why, that's why we'll take the Lord's Supper together here as his people in just a moment. Because in the Lord's Supper, we share in the body and the blood of Christ and participate in what his life and death has accomplished for us as his people. The Lord's Supper is about remembering God's mercy to us in particular. It's why we do the Lord's Supper corporately as a church. The we is, the we is crucial for us. If you're a Christian, then then yes and amen, the Lord's Supper is about God's mercy to you personally, but it's also about God's mercy to us as his church particularly. The Lord's Supper, it's, it's about communing with Christ and one another. It, it's never a private affair. It's always public business. The Lord's Supper, it dramatizes our union with Christ and therefore our unity with one another in Christ. It's about being bound vertically to Christ and horizontally to one another. We never, ever sit alone at Christ's table. We're always sitting with the family. That's why, that's why only Christians who are, are baptized members of local churches should take the Lord's Supper because it's a family meal expressing the way in which our Father has made us his children through his Son. It shows us how God has, has indeed helped his servant Israel and remembered his promises to Abraham and to his offspring through the gospel. And who are Abraham's offspring? Who are, who are those people? Well, for those of us with ears to hear, Mary has spent her entire song telling us. With those, for, for those of us with ears to hear, Mary's in fact been singing the gospel itself over us, verse by verse in her song. Abraham's offspring are, are those who, like Mary, recognize their humble estate before a holy God. Those who know that they are but poor sinners, powerless to save themselves. 
Those who, who come to God hungry and yet trust that he is faithful to satisfy those who hunger for him. Those like, like Abraham who believed the word of God, turned from his idols, and followed God in faith. As John reminds us in his gospel, Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So friend, if you believe, if you believe in the name of Christ, the promises of God are for you. Therefore, therefore you. So this morning, if, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you would, but everything that we've just read and talked about sounds like a foreign language to you. Well, you need to know that this is what Christianity is all about. This is what Christians celebrate at Christmas and all throughout the year. This is what we call the gospel, and it is great news. Because here's the deal. You and I have offended a holy God. If he's the one who never failed fails to keep his promises to his people, then that makes us the promiscuous lover and the politician who's always breaking his promises. We're the ones always breaking our word. Scripture says that we fall short of God's glory every single time. And because he is infinitely holy, the distance that our sin puts between us and him is infinitely wide and deep. And so we are cut off from him in the dark, dead, and under his wrath. But in his extraordinary mercy, his light shines in the darkness. He looks down on us in our humble estate, and he sends his son, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, without sin, very God of very God, as our substitute, to die on the cross, to save us from our sins. If we will humble ourselves, repent, and turn and trust him in faith. In Jesus, in the gospel, God personally looks down on sinners like you and me in our humble estate. He powerfully reverses our fortunes, and he helps all who turn to him in faith and repentance. Friend, by his mercy, God's promises can be yours if you will abandon your sin and throw all of your hope and affection on his king, on his son. Remember, remember what's in store for those who in their pride say they have no need of God. Re remember who God will exalt and who he will fill with all good things. Remember who he will cast down and send away empty. Remember who sits at his right hand. 
Repent and believe. Trust him. Follow him. Remember his promises. Our God, he never fails to keep those promises. He keeps them personally and powerfully and particularly for those of us in Christ. It's not a, that's not a question. That's a, that's a done deal. The only real question is this. Will those promises be yours? Yours?